You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by the Breeders' Cup. Hi there, welcome to the show. It's Tuesday, January the 31st. Just held off for a slightly late edition of this podcast because I was waiting for news from Ireland, which is now uh, getting out, and that is that Ronan McNally, whose case we've featured extensively here on the podcast, has been disqualified by the Irish Horse Racing Regulatory Board for 12 years. McNally has been banned for 12 years and fined £50,000. Just a reminder that the IHRB, at the end of last year, found McNally guilty of causing serious damage, in their words, to the interests of horse racing in Ireland, with charges including using the racecourse as a training ground, running horses insufficiently schooled in order to obtain handicap marks not reflective of their ability, deliberately permitting the jam man to run other than on his merits at Navan in 2020, and uh, charged with passing inside information about the condition and well-being of the real deal, to allow others to profit from betting on the horse with a betting organisation. That is 12 years disqualification and £50,000 for Ronan McNally, who says at the moment that he is um, he's too upset to, to speak on the record, uh, but is strongly considering an appeal. Uh, more of that to follow. Uh, until lunchtime today, I'd been fully intending to lead with the whip, which is dominating headlines in Britain again, uh, and I was talking with, with Lydia Hislop, a broadcaster and journalist, and I began by asking her why uh, the whip issue had hit another significant roadblock. Well, we're in uh, week three of the bedding in, in period, but really only week two because so much racing was lost to the weather in, in week two. And stewards are conveying to riders uh, when the new whip rules become active, the kind of bands that they can be expecting. And I say kind of because I'd also stress that I think the, the race day stewards are also going to be learning during this bedding in period about how the WIP review committee views certain breaches. So I think there is a, a learning curve for all involved, not just the jockeys, but the stewards as well. And it's called a bedding in period for the reason for a reason. But obviously, um, racing uh, is not known for taking a deep breath, stepping back and having a look at exactly where we are. So uh, we're into full-blown panic mode with people uh, feeding uh, their concerns constantly to those who uh, might wish to have a, an agenda against the new whip rules, which, you know, I understand lots of people felt that the whip rules didn't need to be touched at all. And they feel that horse racing is reacting to a perception, but that is not the reality that the British Horse Racing Authority and the industry is working within within a wider social context and with it within a political context as well. So there are lots of agendas swirling around mm. this reality of the a very emotional reaction to these potential bans uh, that are being uh, potent that, that would theoretically be handed out were this not a bedding in period. Yeah, and on all those conditionals that you've just introduced are very important when talking about this. Um, but there've been many anecdotal uh, stories 
expanded around the last few days about how what what kind of whip bands jockeys would have received one of them was uh, harry cobden on il ridotto in a high profile race at cheltenham on trials day a, a ride that was widely lauded and applauded um this is what harry cobden said a reminder that he was well within the whip number guidelines even under the newest rules he only he only hit the horse five times from the back of the last to the to the line but this is what he had to say about what happened after the race in the stewards room i went into the stewards room and uh they froze the images um of the replay of when they thought my hand was over shoulder uh, over overhead height rather on um three of the hits you could clearly see that i was in breach of the rule my hand was ever so slightly overhead height um i was told that i would get eight days for each hit um so because it was a class one that was why it was eight days rather than four so uh then i would have come out of that race with a 24-day ban how difficult has it been to, to change technically for you personally well i I've always ridden like this for well, since time began. I've never been called in for over shoulder height before. Um, before Saturday, I hadn't ridden for 12 days. So I've missed a lot of the bedding in period anyway because of the weather and various other commitments that I meant I didn't go racing. So, you know, it's difficult. We're all we're all trying. But um, I think that, that that rule certainly needs to be looked into and definitely tweaked. What about the rest of it? What about the numbers and the... But now, now the backhand forehand thing's gone, and and the and the general penalty structure. What 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 are you sort of making of all of that? We're very happy with that. Um, the numbers we're fine with. The force rule we're fine with. The uh, cutting horses short we're fine with. We're we're happy with all of those rules. The only rule that we have an issue with, and I think it is the the, the rule that keeps popping up, is the over shoulder height. Um, it's the one that keeps rearing its head so i think we either need to change the wording or do something uh about it um i don't think lessening the penalties will achieve anything because jockeys are still gonna still gonna get banned but we need, need to somehow change the wording of that rule you know if it looks forceful and you're striking a horse uh and it there looks like there's a, a lot of force or anger behind it, then fair enough, you should be done. But if you're riding how I rode Il Rodoto on Saturday, you know, nobody sees anything wrong with that. And I thought, think it's very unfair to get, well, as I think, 24 days uh, for that one ride. The issue as regards the, the above shoulder height and them trying to come up with a, with a clearer definition because jockeys wanted some sort of clarity and, and consistency. Um, it... It, could there be a clear definition of above shoulder height, or is it, in your opinion, is it impossible? Well, if your arm's straight, then 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 that's not right. But if you if your hands a couple of inches above your head and it doesn't look out of place, then I don't think it should be a problem. All right, Lydia, that was that was Harry Cobden. So, what do you make of what he had to say first of all, and then we'll try and get to the bottom of of what's been going on. Okay, I've got I've got lots of things to say about what Harry has just said. Um, first of all, you and I, I know, will go into why above shoulder height seems to be the focus of so much concern, because uh -huh. there's a lot of different factors involved in this. First of all, I, I mean, I, I could be adding this up wrong, and I, I stress, I mean, we're all trying to get used to these new rules. But if there are three um, strikes that are counted above shoulder height for Harry Cobden, um, and the first one amounts to a breach, there is no discretion applied you get uh, four days for that first one, which is then doubled for class one or two races, which is eight. And then if you read below the guidance, it says 
If the finding is a breach of one example, the WIP Review Committee should refer to the respective example and its corresponding penalty as above, and then add a further three days for each use thereafter, double to six days in class one or two races. Therefore, I can only make this add up to 20 days, not 24 days. So that's a yeah. that's a small that's a it, small point, but we're all working out how well, these things it, actually it, work. It's a small point, but I think it might explain something. And I'll, I'll, I'll put this to you, first of all. The BHA have explicitly told me that the stewards on the day ha have not been telling jockeys, and particularly in this instance, have not been telling jockeys explicitly what their bans are going to be. So I'm thinking, okay, why is Harry Cobden, who is, um, I've got no reason to believe is not telling the truth, no. That, was a, that was a perfectly reasonable and honest testimony he just he just gave. Why is he saying that? My feeling is that the that the the stipendary stewards are saying to the jockeys, right? Here's what you you technically have breached under the new rules, under the definition of the new rules of being above shoulder height, which has now got a clearer definition that reckons without what the newly formed weekly review panel would have made of that. So we yeah. don't actually know what kind of ban he, he would have got. And I think no. there's been a, a little bit of miscommunication here that probably needs tidying up. Uh, agreed. But I think also there's some some whipping up of feeling as well to, to some degree, you know, for different motivations, again, which we've, we've sort of touched upon and might go into in further, further detail. But as you say, the definition of above shoulder height, well, there wasn't really a strict working definition of above shoulder height go, going into this process. And so coming out of this process, there is now a definition. And that definition is about um, a gap between the rider's hand, is where there is clear space between the hand and the top of the helmet. That amounts to a breach. And apparently this is very uh, similar to the American guidelines, which have the wrist above the helmet and so the view is that maybe there's a little actually a little bit more wriggle room with the british uh, definition of it so now so where before there was no definition so stewards uh, presumably uh, were enforcing it as they saw fit which might vary from steward room to steward room and that's also the kind of inconsistency that jockeys are saying that they wish wish to avoid so hence you know they were pushing for no dis no discretion to be applied and so then you have a new definition which now the 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 stewards are have got something to work to and that is moved to the whip review committee who will decide you know, what um, penalty they impose. And the other factor that's impacting and, and making the sh above shoulder height such a focus for of heat and light is that, of course, the penalties have changed. They have increased, particularly in grade one and two races. So there are lots of factors that are coalescing here to make above shoulder height the sparking point of a lot of concerns. And I just want to make one final point of what Harry said there. He himself has said that he, um, he rode last Saturday and he hadn't ridden the previous 12 days prior to that, so he's missed most of the bedding-in period. Um, and then he says, uh, in a couple of sentences later, that the wording should be changed or the rule amended. I, I don't think it is logically reasonable, if you're admitting that you've missed 12 days of the bedding-in period, to say on the experience of riding on Saturday in a high-profile race and getting a big number out of that, theoretically, to say that the, rule must be, the wording must be changed or the rule amended. Bedding-in requires everybody to actually try during that period and not kind of just say too difficult after the first uh, difficult uh, difficulty that they encounter. The other point to note, particularly on this, is that what was happening before, it seems, 
is that the that coefficient of giving it more days for every time you use the whip above shoulder height was being applied very, very rarely. Mm. So that the stewards would say, well, we'll give you the ban for the one, but we'll we'll waive the other two. Mm. So you've gone from a position, a fairly lax position in regulation, now to something that might be, might be much more literally applied. So this is perhaps what the stipes, is, uh, stipes are pointing out. So I can understand from the jockey's point of view that if they've if if this uh, if so much discretion has been applied, that, that that people were using their whip in a way that they didn't realise might be a breach of the rules, and certainly is now a breach of the rules because they have been better defined. So from the jockey's perspective, this is quite a steep learning curve for this particular rule, but. There is a bedding in period, and the point of that bedding in period is to use that time to to adjust. And we're talking about sports people who are at the forefront of their their profession. And you know, as I understand it, there are just a small number of riders who are regularly coming up against the same problem. And some of those riders are actually have already shown great improvement. You know, those riders. Some there are some riders who are really applying themselves to try and respond to the feedback that they are getting. But if we take a step back from a from a, a ruling of the sport point of view, from a punter's point of view, I, I'm. I'm glad that there's no longer a sort of murky discretion applied within each separate individual steward's room because I think we should everybody should know the rules that they're working to and that there should be consistency and when you don't have um when you have discretion applied individually you are going to get some inconsistencies and that is going to annoy the jockeys and therefore they asked for this this is what they asked for they wanted no discretion because they want inconsistency and by having uh the panel the three-person panel um i think it's a it, it's there's a pool of people that are drawn to uh, for, to the three-person panel but there there will be a very small group of people and as i understand it there's always the same chair um that means that you should get people applying the principle with greater consistency than different sets of people all around the country on different In days. addition, under the rules that were proposed before the jockeys brokered a new deal with the BHA, uh, Harry Cobden's offence at the most would have received, by my calculations, and again, I can't guarantee I'm getting all of these right, 10 days. Mm. Well, so, it was one of the... It was one of the I mean, essentially, what what seems to have happened once the um, review left the steering group, the whip the the whip steering group, and the recommendations were published, and it was decided that the um, uh, outlawing of the forehand was unworkable, and a delegation of of jockeys went, and the BHA board were able to uh, move to a position whereby they could find a workable solution. It seemed seemed that you know the 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 primary thing, the overriding thing, was the removal of the outlawing of the forehand, and that jockeys were prepared to accept no discretion, greater penalties, whatever, um, and uh, in order to be able to get rid of that thing, that element that they said was unworkable. And afterwards they came out and said that they would work really hard to to, to achieve this. And uh, uh, in negotiations, as I understand it, you know, they acknowledged that there was a perception issue about this, that they, that they, that they did need to uh, improve techniques so that they could um, ensure that this didn't become an issue again and again and again. And, and, there is a point you know at which you have to um t take a step back and say look you know this is the landscape we're dealing with 
you know, every time we come to an agreement, we're trying to get it to, to row back on it. And also the whip isn't the only time that this has happened. And I'm only cited these examples. And I know there are nuance within all of these examples, but you've had, you know, the weight allowance and the hind shoes. There is a there is a repetitive cycle and jockeys collectively are going to have to ensure that when they speak as one voice, that that their voice is listened to. If they're just if they start to be seen by other negotiating negotiating parties as knee-jerk antis that just aren't going to consider anything that, that is found difficult, then that is a very difficult position yeah. for them politically to be in. And I think there are some senior jockeys, both on the flat and over jumps, who are taking a, an incredibly conciliatory and, and responsible position here, but they're probably not the ones you're hearing so much from at the moment. Just a, a point on the original steering group. We're going right back to the beginning of this. And what were the key principles of doing anything about the whip? And these were the five key principles. Rules that foster more considered and judicious use of the whip for encouragement. This was after it had been decided that whip for encouragement would stay. A more balanced regulatory approach to the whip, ensuring a stronger focus on improvement of standards. A stewarding approach that complements this, ensuring that appropriate time is taken to consider whip offences, retaining an element of appropriate discretion whilst improving the consistency stewarding of whip offences, and the need for penalties to act as an effective deterrent, including in situations where the incentive to break the rules was likely to be greater. Now, if, I, if I've got to be somebody who has, who has to be one of the 15 people who signs off on that, very happy with that. But it does beg the question, we've now got to a, a position where there's a, a strong degree of in, intransigence on both sides. I'll ask you now, Lydia, on the cusp of Cheltenham, with the betting-in period somewhat deferred by the bad weather, are we now facing complete meltdown? I really hope not. I really hope not. I think it's beholden on those responsible voices to remind those people who are understandably upset as i said you know i can see it from from their point of view particularly the shoulder height thing this never used to be an issue and suddenly it's an issue um i think the the wiser uh, more far-sighted voices need to remind their colleagues that this is a bedding in period that there will be time to work things out and that if people you know apply themselves to improvements i mean you know I, I, people would say oh it's very easy for you sitting there but you know if there was a i don't know some kind of rule that applied to journalists and i had to you know not not do x or y and i was given a time period in order in order to do that you know i i would have to for my own um professional career for my own you know viability financial viability i would have to try and abide by that and use the time to adapt and it is beholden on all professionals riding within a sphere that has rules to be able to adapt and as i said before we're talking about people sports people who are at the forefront of their profession so you know it, I realise I realise it's difficult. I realise that you're having to change things that you haven't um, had to consider, perhaps for the, the entirety of your career. But, you know, you're also very talented, so you can uh, work on it and hopefully uh, you would adapt. Another thing to point out is, you know, if if quite often you hear tennis players having to, for example, rebuild their serve, don't, don't you? It's usually down to injury. And they have... Um, coaches who help them do that they have full-term coaches all the time even Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal and um, Novak Djokovic have full-time coaches and there was a point in in and it's still got a bit of a hangover period in, Brit in British racing whereby fully professional riders think they didn't really need a coach 
But actually, this is exactly the kind of thing that a coach could really help somebody to achieve in terms of um, moulding what they are doing to fit an evolution of the rules. Now, one one jockey who fell foul of the whip rules but was ultimately to fall foul of rather more serious ones was Danny Brock, who's now disqualified, as you'll have been following on the podcast the last couple of weeks. Chris Cook, in his uh, excellent front-runner piece in the Racing Post, has... Um, unearthed some more from danny brock this morning lydia which has posed some interesting questions what, what did he what did he come up with to chris uh well essentially um danny brock who chris acknowledges straight away is um going to be uh, keen to um paint the the, the organization or, or the uh regulator whose independent disciplinary panel has just banned him from the sport for 15 years and also is going to have implications for his next sport working in greyhound racing as a trainer i mean it, it, clearly he is going to harbor <laughs> some sort of ill feelings in in that direction uh, but chris makes the point that you know that doesn't mean that we have to dismiss everything that uh, Danny um, Brock might say. And uh, Danny says, I've kept this under wraps because I was still in the industry and didn't want to cause a problem. Circumstances have changed and I think others should know. He's referring to the BHA's handling of an incident in September 2017 when the BHA received an anonymous tip-off that the horse that Brock was riding, Murdenova, had been doped with Butte and would have it in his system when he raced that night at Wolverhampton. And Brock is making the point that he feels it was disgraceful that the BHA kept that information to himself and uh, Butte's a painkiller he could have been riding a horse uh, whereby the Butte was masking something that could have put him at physical uh, risk and he objects to the way in which the BHA approaches such matters and Chris Cook had some ideas of his own about how he thought they should approach it. What are the processes here as you understand it Lydia? Well, I mean, Chris is suggesting that the horse should be tested on arrival at the race course and find out the truth or otherwise of the alleged doping and then talk to the trainer and jockey to ask if they're happy to race. Um, what, the, what I understand of, of the method here is that uh, the BHA uses the same process, the national intelligence model, as the police. They have um, in their integrity department a sort of intelligence gatekeeper. Um, ben Stokes is in charge of this. He receives all the intelligence and processes it. And using the national intelligence model, they kind of grade it and so for example if you were to get some a very solid piece of evidence from a uh, a source who has been very reliable in the in the past that would go right to the top of the tree and that would you know set off all the alarms there'd be a further intelligent development meeting further discussions to talk about how this would be approached and this is an internationally recognized approach in terms of, of the racing industry as i said it's also nationally recognized in terms of of the police this national intelligence model however if you were to get a a, a more shaky piece of intelligence that perhaps, for example, comes from someone who is not not has not seen to be reliable, or you don't know the reliability of that source. That would get a lower grading. So, in terms of um, this, this is how the, the the BHA would then approach it. That would determine their response. And of course, the issue on the on the flip side is, you know, the, the kind of let's let's say in Hong Kong, if you if if you're in in Hong Kong with their money and everything on site, you could go and get um, a, a sample from the horse you're concerned about that you've received intelligence about in the morning, and the lab on site lab could turn around um, an analysis within a couple of hours. Britain doesn't have the money or resources to, to do that. What they have is is a screening ability. 
but compared to laboratory analysis that that is that just doesn't give an accuracy of result doesn't doesn't give you the kind of um, solidity and definition that you would get from proper laboratory analysis so you could get yourself into a scenario whereby the screening uh, process um, of a uh, low level uh, piece of intelligence one that you wouldn't say is highly reliable um, indicates that the the trainer and the jockey and the connection should be should be uh, alerted uh, the horse is withdrawn and then subsequent analysis shows that there was nothing to see here and that obviously would end up in the civil courts so that th there is a there is a way to approach a level of risk I, clearly as we are all of us being humans you won't get it completely right all the time but the BHA, as I understand it, doesn't deviate from the national intelligence model. All right, Lydia. So, you know, I'm, I'm not, I don't think we've been banging on, but we have been pressing the point about race courses offering value to customers, particularly in these straightened times. Yes? Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, I've been banging on about it for years, if I'm honest, Luke, but carry on. We've also been, we've also been banging on about how much we, we both love Sandown Park and would like to see it full at all times. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Well, the Soundown executive uh, reached out, as they like to say in America, to us. <laughs> and we were only happy to join forces because it is one of my favourite race courses. It's only down the road from me. There's nowhere that, that offers a better spectacle, I don't think, particularly for jump racing, but also for top quality flat racing. And you can go half price to Imperial Cup Day, Betfair Imperial Cup Day, on Saturday the 11th in the grandstand enclosure. So that's a tenner. A tenner. That's great. Yeah, a tenner to the grandstand enclosure, half price tickets, and you can get a maximum of four tickets per order as well. So four tickets, not inconsiderable. That's a is a, a big saving, and you use the code NL10. Easy as that. Fantastic. Nick, daily podcast listener, you go for a tenner, half price tickets to the grandstand enclosure. Head to the jockeyclub.co.uk forward slash sandown. Add your Imperial Cup tickets to your basket. Enter the code at the checkout, and you've got to hurry because. I was going to say there are limited tickets available, but there are 500 tickets available. So if we can get 500 of you to Sandown, half price, I reckon we've done a pretty good job. Absolutely. That's really good. NL10, NL10. Well, last <laughs> year, you would have seen Lucia beat Eva Grace in the uh, Mayor's Bumper. You'd have seen Surprise Package win for Peter Fahey in the Imperial Cup, dot up by nine lengths. You'd have seen one of my favourite races the entire year, which is the EBF National Novices Handicap Hurdle Final, the Grade 3 over two and a half miles. You would have seen Complete Unknown beat Marble Sands, beat Dubrovnik Harry, and all three of those horses are pretty talented. Uh, it's a superb day's racing. And, you know, like like you, I'm a massive fan of Sandown in terms of, of its viewing. In terms of the feel that you can have there um i particularly love the the first level um sort of balcony level uh walkway level where you can actually over oversee the um parade ring at the back and then walk through and watch it and also i mean uh strikes permitting they've got a train station as well you know right on the door so it's easy to get to it's a fantastic place and uh, it should be an excellent day nl10 jockeyclub.co.uk forward slash stand out add those Imperial Cup Day tickets uh, to your basket and you will get them half price. Hurry will stocks last, as they say. I have to say their food is quite good at Sandown as well. You know, the the little the in the grandstand, that the hot hot counter and the cold counters and things like that, you can actually uh, among race courses it stands up uh, pretty well. Prices are a bit high, but um I would say that wouldn't tie. But nonetheless, the actual quality is there. 
Of course, they race this weekend. The Grade 1 Silly Isles is the feature race there. And although all eyes will be on the Dublin Racing Festival, Gordon Elliott, canny man that he is, has his eyes both at home and here in the UK because he's got a load of entries at Sandown as well. Amongst them, Jerry Colomb, who could conceivably have gone to to either venue. And I, I asked him what was likelier this weekend when I spoke to him earlier. Uh, no, I'd say it's probably more likely he could go for the City Isles and go to Dublin with where the ground is. Um, he's going to work this morning and see how he is, but uh, we'll keep all options open. You've made quite a bit of the ground with this horse. Is he just one of those that's incredibly ground contingent? Does he have to have it soft? Uh, not really. It's just you, uh, uh, as a young horse, he's just very big and big and backward, and we just kind of took our time with him and done the right thing. But uh, he's got a lot stronger now, and um, I don't think he's as the ground dependent as he was. So likely to go to stand down. How many do you think you'll run here at, in England? Uh, I've got a couple uh, scattered all over England at the weekend, so they're all working this morning and we see what's what, but um, we could have a couple at the weekend, all be well. All right, and as far as the Dublin Racing Festival is concerned, who would say is your your squad captain for this weekend? Oh, this is really a great race now. Both days are great race. You know, if I pick out one, I'm, I'm not being fair on the <laughs> others. Um, look, we, we've, got, we've got a good bunch of horses to run. Some are going to keep fresh and go, go straight to Cheltenham Wish, but uh, they're all kind of doing their final bits of work today and tomorrow and we'll make final decisions for me tomorrow afternoon to be honest I mean having said that I mean if we if we started in the in the biggest race of all the, the Irish Gold Cup um, Conflated won the race last year is there any reason to think he's better this time round? Uh, he looks he's probably more he's more of a settled horse this time around Nick you know last year he's very keen and he's kind of learning to relax better as he's getting older so he's um, you know whether we go straight to Cheltenham and him run up the weekend I'm not sure yet it uh, wouldn't be beyond uh, that we go, we go straight to Cheltenham with him, you know. So you may not even run this weekend? Yeah, no, I'm going to work him today, but I'm, I'm, at the moment I'm leaning towards going straight to Cheltenham with him. Um, so we might just have Fury Road and that all be well. So is that is that a freshness thing, or is that because you think that Fury Road's got a, got a pretty decent chance? <laughs> I just think Conflate uh, can run well fresh. He ran well in Cheltenham last year, and... Um, I'd like to go, go to the Gold Cup with a fresh horse, you know. Okay, so he might he might not run this weekend. I'm intrigued to see American Mike back. Should I should I retain the faith? Yeah, I'm looking forward to getting him back out. Obviously, he, he, out from his last run, he hasn't done anything wrong all his career. So we're looking forward to getting him back. Um, he, he's going to walk down in the next couple of hours and we'll see who he is. But uh, the plan is to run him uh, in the 2-6 on Saturday. Uh, that was Gordon Elliott. Um, all right, Lydia. Well, the, the key takeaway there, key takeaways are Jerry Colom to Sandown for what looks a, a good opportunity in the Silly Isles and Conflated probably going to miss this weekend. Let's start with Jerry Colom, who's unbeaten in all discipline, disciplines, points, bumpers, hurdles and novice chases. Now, he could well be very talented, but so far he's beat, he's won a couple of races where the opposition haven't jumped that well and the race has kind of been his to dominate. Um, even the grade one, uh, the Fahin at Limerick over Christmas would apply to that. He came home four and a half, uh, quarter lengths clear of adamantly chosen. Uh, he might like deep ground um, or might need deep ground rather. He definitely likes it. Um, and hence, you know, going to Sandown and potentially getting that. Ultimately, I feel he's a stayer. So um, potentially if something also likes uh, that deep ground over two and a half miles. There's something that might be a little bit speedier than him. Montmirail, for example. Um, but also Balco Coastal, Coastal potentially as well. Um, and Conflated, that's an interesting one because immediately after Conflated, Conflated won 
the Savills chase, the O'Learys um, were saying that um, they thought that uh, the horse should go straight to Cheltenham for the Gold Cup. And I was thinking, well, why? <laughs> why would you do that? Why would you head towards the, the straight to the Gold Cup, cut out the Irish Gold Cup, which you won uh, last season, and go straight to a really deep edition of the Gold Cup where completed would have a chance but not uh, a standout chance whereas in the Irish Gold Cup he would have a very good chance at least of finishing second and we just don't know what Galloping Deschamps is going to do in open grade one company over three miles just yet so um, I wish Conflated was, was running at the Dublin Racing Festival uh, I think that would be the sensible thing to do um, but then again I <laughs> I don't I don't own horses of that level I'm just you know shouting from the sidelines. All right, Thursday 2nd of Friday, the 3rd of February. So coming Thursday, Friday, it's the Tattersall's February sale. Uh, one man to talk to here, quite clearly. A, a man who, who bought the star lot from last year's sale and has a couple of really interesting ones this time. It's owner uh, Ed Babington. Missed the cut, you will know very well. Bought last year for 40 grand via Sam Haggis's Herworth bloodstock. Um, Ed, th- this, is a, this is a proper story, this. Just tell me about the journey you enjoyed with Mr. Cut from, from buying him for 40 grand. Well, why did you buy him in the first place? Um, it's a bit of an odd one, really, because obviously I, I usually only buy fillies, and George and Sam had sort of rung me up. I was, I was on the way to sales, actually, and um, George said, um, I think we've got one here, you know, that would be definitely worth um, looking at. Um, he's a colt, and I thought, well, it doesn't really fit my criteria. Um so obviously went down, had a look at him and I absolutely loved him. So kind of I just jumped on the back of the success of George and, and Sam, which they have at the sales and um, it ended up being Mr. Cut. You know, it was just a Shadwell sort of clear out sale and, you know, just lucky enough that he, he kind of got offered to me and he came my way. But, um, you know, the boys are so, Sam and George are so good at, you know, finding these sort of horses at the sales that, um I was just lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time, really. I mean, this really is quite an extraordinary tale because you've now got partners who include the legendary Lane's End Farm. He's by Quality Road. He's got a pedigree that could go either way. He looked very good on the synthetic when he beat Algiers and, and Herovian. What are you What are you limbering up for now? Well, I mean, he's got loads of options. I mean, he, he he's in all the sort of races in Saudi that he's been invited to, so... You know, as long as I think that's a plan, you know, obviously um, Bill and Lane's end have come in, you know, for half of him. And, you know, they're going to be very much wanting to kind of try him on the dirt, but, you know, because he's, you know, he, he's bred to be a dirt horse and he probably has the action of a dirt horse. And he's definitely got the size and scope of what dirt horses are. So we're just trying to build a profile with him, um, you know. He's, he, he's done so much in a very short space of time. If you think from February, from when he was bought, and then obviously he's been handicapped, then he's won at Royal Ascot. You know, he went to France. He was slightly run out of salts there, but when you sort of, the journey that he'd had in a, in a short space of time, then he went, he didn't scope, you know, clean after, after France, and it was soft ground, which he didn't like. So George gave him a break. We brought him back, and you know he's he's back on the horse that you know we always thought he was. He's training really well at home, so we kind of take a each sort of step at a time of you know him letting us to know where and when you know where we're going to go and pit him. But it's definitely to kind of try and build a profile with him out for America because you know if he's a horse that we think he is, obviously they're going to try and make a stallion out of him, and and you know that's why Lane's end of you know instrumental in. Selling to them because you know that's 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 what they do. And 
George was saying last weekend, if, if he goes to Saudi, it's the Neom Turf Cup. But from what you're saying, given his profile, sort of 9, 10 furlong horse, could go on at artificial, could go on dirt. Would you look at the big race itself? Could your 40 grand horse be lining up for 20 million a year later? <laughs> It'd be, it'd be quite funny that I mean it's kind of he's, he's very much planned to go on the turf this year you know it's just that you know I don't know whether he'd he'd get into into the big race um he's training so well and he's done you know so well you know from sort of three to four he's he's only getting better and it's kind of you'd be I'd be tempted probably not to go down that to the Saudi Cup this year uh, Ed a couple of horses in the in the sale this week what have you what what are you trading well, I've got a, a nice filly actually. So I have the same partnership that own Floatus. So it's a sort of trading partnership that um, Arthur buys. We buy them as yearlings, win with them as, as two-year-old fillies. You know, with with a nice page and progressive and, and sell them on. So this is the same partnership that we had Floatus with. This is a filly called the Ivy. Um, Simon and Ed have done a great job with her. You know, she she took a bit of time where she she was growing and and sort of fitting into herself. And, and she ran nicely first time out. Needed the run for experience. Then went and won second time out. And kind of, I'm in two minds. I probably don't really want to sell it, but it's a trading partnership. And kind of, you've got, we've got to pick the rules out. This is what we do. So she's going to the sale. Ed, thanks so much. Best of luck with uh, with the two this week and, and particularly with Mr. Cut. And we look forward to seeing you in Saudi. Great. Good to talk to you. Thanks, Nick. All right. It's Tuesday. It's the day we go around the bloodstock world with our friends at Weatherbees. And very pleased to welcome back to the show today Simon Davis, uh, whose chapel stud where the Dalbury Stallions stand is making big waves in the national hunt industry in Great Britain and hopefully beyond in years to come. Three Stallions, Planter, Bangkok and Valsa Tak Planter's great flag bearer down the years has been the champion stayer, Trushan, but much more of him in a few moments' time. Simon's company, Dalbury Stallion, sponsored the Cleave Hurdle at Cheltenham last weekend and he recently purchased the Glancing Queen for 150000 at the Goffs January sales and, and joins me now. Um, Simon, I, I suppose we better start at the beginning. It's been a, it's been a rapid ascent. Where did, the, where did the germ of the idea come from? Um, it it stems back to 2016 when um, when I when I first had my first racehorse, I suppose, um, and basically my day job, which is um, in a telecommunications company with my wife, you know, we were we were very busy and basically all we were doing were was was work and uh, we get home from work at night and how was your day and yeah, we all we all we all knew the answer to that so um, we needed to find something different so um, we, we we thought right okay what can we do outside of, of our day job um, we thought we would um, get into horse ownership horse race ownership which uh, we, we ran around a number of trainers and um you know, we hit on Tom and Tom and Elsa Simmons, um, and really the brief was there just to get a, you know, a uh, have some fun. Really, we didn't have pots of cash, but it was just to have some fun, and we and we definitely did that. Um, they 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 weren't very successful, but but we we had some fantastic fun and met some great people. Um, and then um, when we were we were looking at selling um, some of those horses, yes, we sold the geldings and they carried on running and so on, but. Um, when we were looking at selling some of the mares, um, the idea came up of, of, of maybe breeding from them, which we did in, uh, which was five years ago, and I had one mare, and um, we we we, um, we put 
put that to scope. There was a presenting mayor, we put that to Scorpion. Um, and then the second year, we had two mayors. Um, but then it rapidly jumped to 10. And it was, where do we where do we send these um, mayors to? And it was, you know, getting advice from Tom, getting advice from, from Scarlett at the time, Scarlett Knight. And um, it was, oh, sending them all, you know, nine out of the 10 was go, either going to France or Ireland and only one staying in England, which I thought was a, uh, a, bit, of, a bit of a shame. So um, we did that that year, but um, it, it sowed the seed really in terms of, well, surely there's got to be choice and better quality. You know, we had Cape Tara here um, in terms of from the National Home Front and, and there, were, there were some other stallions, but, but none really fitted my... Um, my mayor, so um, he, he thought, well, we've, we've got to do something about this, really, from a from an opportunity point of view. But uh, um, there's something wrong in in, in in Britain, and really, we need more choice, more quality um, stallions to, to to have the choice to to send mayors in in Britain too. So that that's where the the, the idea came from. And obviously, any venture like this, Simon needs a needs a good team of people around them. We spoke on this on this. Uh, podcast on, on in this uh, segment to uh, Rasheen last last year a, a key part of your your operation. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. What we like I say, what we're trying to trying to build here is is a quality operation um, and, and, at Dalbury, and um, you know, key to that is is Rian, my wife. She's she's very heavily involved in that even though she's she's probably not the face of it but she um and, and uh, in front of the into the cameras and and speaking on interviews but she's definitely the brains and the sanity behind it she puts the operational perspective on 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 everything that we do and you know all the decisions all the mayors and the stallions that we buy you know they, she's she's integral to, to making those decisions but but also in terms of the team um you know <laughs> Rian and I, we, we travel a lot we, around the world with, with our day job, but, um, you know, we put a, a lot of emphasis on, on, on that quality team that we have. And, and, and integral to that is, is Tom Simmons. And, and we rely very heavily on him with his encyclopedic knowledge of pedigrees. But, but you know, when we're talking about strategy, where we're going and everything else, Tom is, Tom is, um, is, is heavily involved in, in all of the decisions we make. And I think we then got Roisin, who... Uh, with the team at Chapel Stud, she she looks after the stallions and 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 she does all the foaling for us and and you know very ex- experienced, very knowledgeable, and um, we we couldn't wish for anyone better than than Roisin to look after that side of it. Um, and then then the brood mares, um, which is ever growing, you know, with with put the kettle on and the dancing queen, the heritage and, and win my wings and so on. But you know, and they're all being looked after by Scarlet Knight. And again, you know, she she doesn't need much instruction uh, with the team at Cobble Court, you know, having bred thistle crack and, and a number of other top top resources. Um so yeah, again we rely very heavily on, on Scarlet to Scarlet to um to look after those mares. Um and then we have Tina Tina Dawson who, who does the nomination. So so that that's pretty much the team and, and you know it, we, we couldn't ask for a better team around us to look after us uh, and uh, and um, our horses. So yeah we're very pleased. Simon Planto was the first stallion that's had success, most notably with, with Trushan, who's really put him on the map. You've added Bangkok, a son of Frankel, who's got mile, mile in the quarter form, uh, and Valtz attacked uh, interesting horse who's having quite a few runners now. What are your main hopes for them? Yeah, well, um, Bangkok and Valtz attack, they, they, they didn't have 
they didn't cover great books of mares in terms of numbers last year, but in terms of quality, they did. Um, firstly, on 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 Bull's attack, he you know he he was a he was a great stayer. He had a bit of a strange start to his career where he didn't actually run as a racehorse until he was five. He was um, he was being used as a, a dressage horse uh, prior to that because he he didn't meet some of the tests that uh, his owners uh, met for being a racehorse. But you know he won some you know. The, a group two and group threes as a, as a racehorse and he, like I say he didn't start till he was five but he is he's very well bred he's on the same cross um, as Camelot being out of Monjure and uh, a King Mamo Mare so you know he's he's very well bred and um, he's a he's a strong correct tough horse and um, we, we believe he will be um, he will be a great success he's He's got some great runners coming through. You know, some of some of his progeny sold for 195,000 euros. One of that one being Zertak, who's actually running today, um, uh, who, who runs for Venetia, and we're quite excited about to see how he runs today. But but there's also quite a few coming through there um, as yeah, as as they come through his oldest of five. So they. You know, we've got um, in excess running for, for Willie Mannings, who won very impressively last year, and he's got an entry in, in the Ballymore and also the Supreme this year. So, again, very excited. And there's a few more. Gilles Jones, um ran yesterday at Hereford and run quite well. So we're, we're quite, quite, quite excited about seeing those horses come through and, and hit the racetrack. Um, there's quite a few nice ones coming through. In terms of Bangkok, he's... he's, he's He's a bit more difficult. He was a very, again, a very, very tough, well-bred um, son of Australia, um, and out of a Darshan man, Tanagum. But um, um, and, and he's a half brother to the foxes. He's very exciting this year. But but again, he, you know, a very sound horse, very tough, run over multiple, you know, distances from seven furlongs to one and a half miles. Um, you know, and on all services and travelled around the world. He, you know, he was a very, very tough horse. Um, and we think he'll be a, again, given the the numbers and the and the right um, uh, the right book of mares, he will be a great success. You know, he he's covered some quality in his small book last year, so we're very hopeful. Um, and we we believe that he will breed flat and and jumps horses. Uh, and we're putting our money where our mouth is. And you know, for, for breeders who breed a two year old winner, with you know, there's bonuses of free returns and. Um, first stakes winners, uh, you know, an extra twenty five grand. But, but yeah, so we 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 think he'll be a great success. But it, it's tough with with getting the, the number of mares to him. But he is a, a beautiful looking horse and and very very tough. And this, as I say, has come a long way in a very short time. But what would you say is the ultimate goal, Simon? How how commercial are you are you trying to be? And and to what extent is it is it a, just an extension of a hobby? Uh, yeah, and I suppose it, 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 all the money's going one way at the moment. It's you know we're investing heavily in the broodmare band, which which um, we have re- we have recently over the last twelve months. But you know it 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 needs to it needs to be commercial. It needs to be um, it needs to wipe its face. It needs to make profit. And and you know the aim is to be is is to be to, not to just bring us, but to bring British breeding back to where it should be in terms of you know. Um, but we can't do it on our own. So we're, I, I'm not going to continue to do this if it's not going to make money. You know, it, we, we'll do it for a while and we know it's a, a long game, especially from a national hunt point of view um, by the time you get runners on the ground. But but the Stallions, I'm, I'm confident that they, they, will, they will 
be popular and they will be successful. Um, but in terms of, of, of selling foals and the broodmares, that, 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 that's where I find it's difficult at the moment because, because the number of mares in Britain are just not there. Uh, and the TBA, you know, study that came out last week, week before, um, proves the point, but gives the evidence that we all know that it's it's declining, and that the number of mares and number of breeders um, are, are falling pretty sharply, and, and something needs to do, be done to to encourage the breeders within within Britain. But from our point of view, it's you know we 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 definitely looking at you know um, we set our sights pretty high in terms of we're looking at. You know, being very successful, hopefully having champion stallions and, and breeding very tough um, quality racehorses um, going forward, which is the aim. Simon, thanks for talking to me. Great. Thanks, Nick. All right. Thanks to Simon. And uh, Lydia, you'll you'll be very pleased to know that Put the Kettle On is due to give birth to Golden Horn. That's fantastic. That is absolutely fantastic. I was a big put the kettle on fan. She clearly wasn't in the right mental frame of mind all of last season, but the season before that, she was a really bonny little trier, and I'm hoping that her progeny are exactly the same. Can I inveigle you into another plug, but I don't think you're going to mind this one. Okay. On that theme, on that mm-hmm. theme. So Jane McGiven um, from Dash Grange Stud, who now owns Golden Horn, um, very kindly unsolicited made the offer to me to auction a nomination to Golden oh, wow. for this season um, so that all the proceeds could go to the two cystic fibrosis charities that um, Laura and I support because our daughter Xanthi lives with cystic fibrosis, which is a, um, a chronic and debilitating condition, a life-limiting condition um, for which so much research still needs to be done. So... Um, she did that, and then not to be outdone, Simon Sweeting, where who runs over Stud, where Jane stands, Golden Horn said, "Well, I'd like to do the same for our dad." Oh, great! An absolute sensation. You know, they're both stallions in different ways with a lot of profile at the moment, um, and I'm really hoping we can raise as much money as we possibly can. The site's going to go live next week. The auction site's going to go live next week, and it's going to last for a week. And as soon as I've got the details, I will get it through. But I want to put it out there on every potential breeder's radar that there are nominations to Golden Horn and Ardad to be auctioned, and all all the money will be split between the Cystic Fibrosis Trust and Professor Jane Davis's research at the Royal Brompton Hospital. That's fantastic. That's really, really, really good. I look forward to uh, watching the bidding. On a um, rather more um, immediate note, have you got some advice for me for some time this week? I'm going to the weekend. In fact, I'm going to Sunday uh, for the opening race, the Mayor's Handicap Hurdle at Leopardstown. And I like the look of her monument maker. I think she's really very talented. I think her handicap mark looks, uh, how shall I put this, workable. Um, and I am uh, I think she can win that opening race. So it's the one turn at Leopardstown on Sunday. Um, the uh, Irish Stallions Farms EBF Paddy Mullins Mayor's Handicap Hurdle. Harmonia maker for Gordon Elliott. Okay, Harmonia Maker for Lydia at the weekend. Thank you very much for listening. That was Tuesday, the 31st of January. We will see you again tomorrow. Bye bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association, and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Mm-hmm.